2: Welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The P global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to
0: FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin Empire in Montreal, Canada. I'm a registered patent agent in Canada, as well as in the United States and I work in the fields of electricity, telecommunications, mechanical, and information technology, and I'm a counsellor for FICB Canada. Before we delve into today's topic, please note that we will be sending CPD, CLE certificates to those who requested them by mid-December. If you need a CPD or CLE certificate, please let us know and provide us with your full contact information. And today, we're here to talk with Caitlin Kraft-Buckman from an organisation known as Women at the Table, And we will discuss some of the issues regarding women and well let's leave it at that for now and so caitlin i'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and explain to us just a little bit what women at the table is all about
1: thank you thank you so much louis pierre thank you for having me this is i'm very excited to be able to do to address this community women at the table is an ngo based in geneva in switzerland and we're focused on systems change in areas that have traditionally been male-dominated, that democracy and governance, the economy, sustainability, technology. And we've been addressing those issues through the prism of technology and innovation since um, for the last couple of years.
0: So that's very interesting because, of course, you're talking today to people who are involved in technology and innovation in the sense that a lot of the listeners today are people who, like me, represent inventors generally, or companies that hire inventors to protect those innovations through the various mechanisms that exist in the IP field. Um, so that can be patents, and it could be trademarks, and it can be industrial designs and other forms of intellectual property. So so how did you get involved in these topics? What what's spurred you to start looking at this?
1: Well, you know, we work on, as we said, feminist systems change. But one of the first things we did is we formed something called the International Gender Champions, which has now grown to be a whole separate organization on its own, starting in Geneva, but going to New York with Secretary General uh, of the UN, Antonio Guterres. We're in Vienna, The Hague, Paris, Nairobi. And there. Um, there uh, the very bottom line there was no more all-male panels, which is something that we can maybe talk about a little bit later, and some internal commitments. From there, we were led to working at the WTO with the great, the great ambition to talk about gender, but we had been told that gender, that trade was gender neutral. There was no such thing as. As, as gender and trade. Uh, We've proved that wrong legally. We started, we had the first declaration on women's economic empowerment and trade. And that's now um, cascaded into a huge amount of work, both at the WTO, but OECD and lots of other places. But beginning with this notion that WTO would not discuss gender. And indeed our, in our declaration is the first time women have ever been mentioned in a WTO or a GATT document. So, That was a very exciting process. From there, we went to standards. We thought that's another sort of invisible, um, sort of the intertices of all the things that that rule us come from standards. And there we created a gender responsive standards declaration that now every standards maker in the world has signed with ISO, ITU, um, ECE. And from standards, we started to understand that the world of algorithms and algorithmic decision-making was actually sort of a frontier of invisibility that sort of rules us, a set of um, unseen rules and regulations. So that's where our work actually is sitting at the moment.
0: And, and so we, you're talking about the algorithms and, and the data sets. And I think you wanted to sort of expand a little bit on the, the issue. There, a few years ago, we saw this algorithm from, from Amazon that was designed to select or to identify the best candidates for for hiring purposes. And it failed spectacularly.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is something that, you know, Amazon did not advertise. It came out through Reuters. But what's very interesting is with, I I think, all the best intentions, they decided to diversify their, their, their departments. And they did that with an algorithm which benchmarked against the high performers at Amazon and the high performers at Amazon um, were white men who had engineering degrees from Stanford. And so the machine learning uh, you know, and unbe- but those were just the resumes. That was the data that the, the machines were working on. The machine learning wound up throwing women out of the queue completely. They wound up um, learning what a woman's college was without it being told. And so threw people out from Smith, whatever, women's chess chance- champions. Any mention of the word woman that they were thrown out of the queue or went to the bottom of the queue. And so when Amazon figured that out, so that's a sad story, but the the, the moral of this story is that they tried to then fix it as as any right-minded person might, but they worked for three years and they could not have the machines unlearn the bias. And that's the real point and that's the real work That we're all embarking on and trying to research and trying to understand is that machines who don't understand context don't understand um yeah they just have no contextual analysis right it's just like it's pixels it's uh, you all know this probably already so i don't need to preach to the converted but what happens is is that if they're not able to unlearn whatever bias they have. Another example of this is, there's a very famous story. that Somebody analyzed the corpus of Victorian literature and it had women fainting and men being strong and things that we would expect from Victorian literature. The next experiment was 10 years later, did any of this change? And what had happened was people had spoken more about gender in 10 years, because the Guardian had done a whole series of articles about it. But the machines actually were even more gendered and even, picked up even more misogynistic phrasings because all it did is just pick out from the articles that said isn't this awful? they just picked it out as text. So um, it embedded the bias even more even though the bias was being dissected and analyzed in a very you know well-meaning manner.
0: So you know, there's been a lot of movement and, and a lot of press being given to the, the bias that algorithms perhaps may develop because of the data that they're looking at, or even the bias that is invisible or hidden within the data itself. So how does an organization such as Women at the Table or the, the Alliance, to how do we address these issues? What, how, what's the next step in trying to fix this?
1: Well, there's, there, there are two ways, right? There's, there's mitigating it and correcting it. So on the mitigation level, that's mostly research, um, where you're trying to sort of prove that this exists. Now there, there are master's thesis and, and PhDs that are, you know, innumerable about how all this stuff works, predictive policing, um, the way that ImageNet works, the way that, you know, I had a bunch of slides that you can just sort of see it surrounding us completely. I think what we're about to arrive at is a moment where we say, and it's not that the machines have bias. All the machines do is take data that's historical. And historically, there ha- these data sets have been gathered on northern white males because those were the people who are at the universities who are doing the computer science research. So it just happens to be that's where the data comes from. It's northern data. And what happens, um, and that data has bias because it's excluded people. So as you also all know probably know is the notion of bias in computer science or um, sort of it's incomplete data. So it's like being doing a science experiment, but you only have, Half of the data, right? You don't have women in there. You don't have marginalized populations. You don't have people from the South. You don't have um, people of color. So a um, dermatology, a melanoma algorithm that turned out to be 95% um, effective, which was better than the 87% effectiveness of dermatologists being able to spot a melanoma, was ineffective on all people of color because it had never been tested on people of color. They were, A, missing from the data. They were also probably missing from the development teams, which is, takes us to this mo- notion of its inclusion, not only in the data, but also inclusion in the actual group of people who are are uh, creating the stuff. There's also the famous, the sensors. Have you ever noticed, oh, anybody who's been in a public bathroom, that sometimes the sensor works, sometimes it doesn't. It's very sensitive to, um, to light and therefore it is very much insensitive to um, dark-colored skin. So, it, so you have public bathrooms and it doesn't work to wash your hands if you're a person of color. So these are, I can't imagine any of that was a conscious decision on the developers. But on the other hand, by not understanding that there are all these other people in the world, we've wound up making bad science
0: right so i know you had a few slides and i'd like you to to sort of look at them a little bit and and sort of walk us through some of the things that you've noticed and, and seen and just as you're putting those i think one of the movements that we're trying to that we're starting to see in technology generally and in ip firms more specifically is that you know we're we're going to be starting to look at our in, our own internal data um, and so ip firms have a lot of data on some of the stuff that they've been doing. As we're going through the slides, is there something that the firms should be looking at in terms of looking at the data itself and making sure that we're not unconsciously replicating some biases that our internal data may may contain?
1: Yeah, I think that there's actually, there's a lot that one can do. And um, I've been involved in a data standard um, for the British Standards Institution, um, which will go out for open consultation next month. And I think that that'll be could be very very interesting for your lawyers to look at and comment on so that we make it stronger sure let me let me just like just run through quickly so this is all data right we know that seat belts don't work because there were no female crash test dummies even though these are the stats here um, this is from the analog world we know that office thermostats are are key to the metabolic rate of a 70 kilogram man. But it turns out that when you do a math math test and it's colder, women do worse on those test scores by enough point differential that if you were sitting for um, uh, Institute of Higher Learning, you might be shut out of going to an MIT as opposed to a state university because you didn't score as high. Um, you, we know that the U.S. military didn't understand that it needed to have bulletproof vests um, that accommodated you, uh, women's bodies for the reason. There's a famous story in the UK where a woman police officer took off her vest because it was too tight and you know she was stabbed to death. So these are we, we've seen these stories over and over. That all brings us to the world, the digital world that takes this old data, this old bias into this new universe. We talked about the Amazon recruitment algorithm. There's also another famous story about another algorithm. It benefited, it put you to the top of the queue if your name was Jared and you played lacrosse. So evidently there were that many Jareds that played lacrosse in this particular system and that was the way it goes. But it shows that we just um, only see what we know. So here you go, interaction bias. If you've never seen a high heel, you don't know it's a shoe. And here, the computer, everybody drew sneakers. So the computer only knew that sneakers were shoes. Um, we also think, OK, so it's just replicating the bias that we have in the universe. But here, this famous research project showed that you would search for female CEOs in the US, and it would come up 11% CEOs that were women. But the reality is that they're 27% CEOs who are women. And so you, there is a cycle that we've got entered into where all of a sudden the algorithms Are creating a reality or a perception of reality that we think is reality, right? And so it's an ambitious cycle. Facebook ads, we all know as attorneys that they were sued for the way that people were able to target their ads. So, lumberjack ads or police ads only went to men. Those are middle class jobs with pensions, good, high paying, low paying secretarial jobs only to women. They were sued successfully, but Two years later, it turns out the algorithms, even if Facebook tried to solve it, the way that the algorithms work is they're still only served up to the people that the algorithms think would like to see them. So it's still perpetuating it. Famously, the Apple Goldman Sachs credit card that we all heard about recently, we thought, my God, it had to be really perfect. There were two um, groups of people. They were both tech entrepreneurs, uh, husband and wife teams, exactly the same tax returns. The women... Found out that they had significantly um, smaller lo- credit rating than their husbands, and there there was no gender at all in the algorithm. Right, so people took gender out. That's often the first question we get is like, okay, we'll take out race, we'll take out gender, and then the world will be perfect, right? It will be blind, but it isn't because the machines see the bias. They see what how gender plays out throughout lots of other um, lots of other um, data points. There's also, by the way, for um, historically black colleges, the way the credit ratings work and the loans work. That if you go to a, a, a historically black college, you pay a lot more in loan repayment interest. The algorithm than if you go to Harvard. So. These are things that are just sort of embedded that we're finding there. Here, Google Translate still to this very day where there's um, languages that have no he or she, <laughs> my favorite one is in Turkish, right, where it goes, he is hardworking and she is lazy, you know. So there you go. It just like Google Translate decided to translate those things like that. We also know that, hold on, I got got too excited. We see with ImageNet, there's enough um, pairings of forks and spoons that the computer decided anything to do with the kitchen would mean it was about a woman. So even if you had you a picture of you in a kitchen, it would label you as a woman because you, the only reason you would be in the kitchen would be that you were cooking. We also see that ImageNet, and there are a couple of there are a lot of things about ImageNet more and more, but most of the images, as you will see, come from the north. You no, know, it's U.S., it's it's Europe. And that does certain things so that the algorithms wind up seeing only the woman on the left as a bride and the woman on the right as a folklore dancer, even though there are probably more women brides in India than there are in the West. So um, we see... We see this GPT-2 is one of this. uh, We're now up to GPT-3, and it's trained on all of the data of the Internet, um, including Reddit, famously, um, famously misogynistic and racist. And there is the generated text because it learned from Reddit. So I will let you read it for yourself because it's too embarrassing almost for me to see what it says the woman is and what the black man is. But I will say the white man worked as a president of the United States, which I just find very, very ironically sad and very funny. Um, But this is this is the world that we're living in. We heard a lot about facial recognition software, so I won't go into that because it's been written about so much. But there are even these um, these image systems. So even if you're a very famous woman like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it will auto correct a picture of her from the top with a bikini on. Um, 53% of the time, whereas a man, any man known or unknown will be auto-completed with a suit and a tie. We see these deep fakes that are used to, you can send a picture of a teenage girl, all of you who have 10-year-old daughters, you can get a picture back of that person who's naked for a dollar on the internet. You have incredible racism in the models here. So there was a great piece in the New England Journal of Medicine about 13 algorithmic um, allocations of, of medical services in the United States. And just in this first one, it says, it basically just put white people at the top of the queue because it proxied for people who went to the doctor a lot must be sicker, therefore they were in need. But if you're in a place where there's no health insurance, Going to the doctor a lot doesn't mean necessarily that you're sick or just means that you're able to access a doctor. Same thing for, uh, for medical algorithms for breast cancer, for not being able to see it in the density of uh, African-American women's breasts. Same thing for giving cesareans as opposed to uh, uh, vaginal birth. It is quite extraordinary about the what we're surrounded by with these sort of these patents that inadvertently have this kind of racism. There's also, I just want to bring up algorithmic decision making in all sorts of um, municipalities, government allocation of services, which have been basically focused on finding fraud, which we're all against. Nobody wants fraud, but they're basically only interested in fraud and they're not necessarily interested in more effectiveness. So there's this sort of battle we talk about between efficiency in the algorithm versus effectiveness of the algorithm. And here, this case was brought in the Netherlands and um, this software was thrown out. So those are just uh, some stuff, quickly, to show so this on fire. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> Indeed. So that, that last slide was breaking the cycle. So how do we, how do we start addressing to break this cycle, generally speaking?
1: Well, first of all, I think awareness is huge. So we're, we're, we're starting that. Here we are. We're doing that here together. I think that we need to cast enough doubt on the system that we put, that we're able to help our legislators and governments and private companies put stuff on hold until we can figure out what the stuff is. We did it for cloning. I think we can also do it for algorithmic decision-making because it, we don't know how this is all going to play out.
0: But there's a dual problem. There's two issues really to address. One is in the data itself, because the if you're, if you're using data that is inherently consisting of or representing or shows in its patterns some biases, then you have an issue with the data. And so you need, but, but the answer is not necessarily to throw more data at it, right? No,
1: more data does not mean better. So, we've been thinking that the more data we'd have, the more intelligent, the more predictive we'd be able to be. But the fact is, if you're just adding more data that has bias historically at it, you're only just going to get more bias in the data. So, it's not more, it's better data. It's what the the answer is better quality data. And that means that you have to know. I mean, what we'd like to start seeing is the provenance of the data. So you're all IP attorneys. I don't think anybody wants to see the code or the secret sauce of anybody's invention at all because there's gonna be a whole new industry just based on reading the code for patents and stuff. But we do know we could use a model like of the FDA, right? We're very happy. We don't need to know exactly what goes into Valium. We just wanna know that like when we buy it, it's not gonna do anything except what it says on the box. So it's the um, same way. So all this kind of consumer protection set of laws that we have, we don't need to know how those things work, really. Some people need to know, not everybody, but we need to know that we're safe. And there isn't, there aren't any of those protections yet, although they're, they're coming in Europe and therefore I think that they'll wind up sort of wafting over the Atlantic. Right.
0: Okay. So it's better quality data. It's data that at some point, I imagine someone's taken a look at to be able to say, yes, this is more legitimate or better quality data than what was there before. But the other issue also is in the algorithm itself. Perhaps the algorithms themselves need to be tweaked a little bit to perhaps identify when when these patterns of biases come out to, to sort of flag it. Is that something that's potentially doable?
1: Well, yeah, I would call it the model, not really the algorithm, but it's like the, the, the assumptions that are built in the model, right? So it's, you know, first of all, it, if we know data provenance, where it comes from, who used it, for whom was it collected, was there consent, you know, what, you know, all those questions that really are about the data that's being used, um, we can, will be in a better place. Then the next part is is when you do clean the data and you rebalance it before you start your process of actually building a a model that uses an algorithm, it it depends on what the purpose is. I mean, data itself without a purpose and without a context is meaningless. It's just numbers, right? So it it needs needs a, a, and that's what a model is, right? The model is sort of, it, it gives it, it's the container, it's the it's the way of taking all the numbers or the liquid. It's the vessel for which we, you know, for which we go. And I think for me, a lot of models have a lot of bias implicit just in the models. We see that with the the famous story with Compass, which was the bail, the bail hearing software that sort of was um, there's something also about uh, predictive policing now. That evidently every every police department in the U.S. uses, and it it shows like there's two. It, it predicts two thousand incidences in a very small area that happens to have black people, and like zero incidents in the area that has has white people in it. I mean, there are there are um, assumptions built into the models that then may or may not become reality, because you have so many police in one area, they're just picking up people for infractions. Do you know what I mean? These things, yep. they feed into each other. And that's, that's what we have to watch out for, because with you know, sort of techno-determinism, where we kind of believe that the technology knows better, the technology is neutral, the technology wouldn't lie, data doesn't lie, it's a number, how could a number lie? But as very famously, um, at one of our first convenings, we had two professors were fighting over this and one said, it goes, but professor, because who picks the X and who picks the three, right? It's an equation. When you make an equation, you're making choices. And the minute you make a choice, there's human volition involved. And in that volition, there there is the possibility and prob- probability of bias.
0: So that's uh, that's interesting. And, and I'd like to, uh, time is going by, and although I wish we could have a much longer conversation, our time is in, unfortunately limited. But let's talk about innovation specifically and how innovation itself has sometimes led to some surprising results in terms of biases. We were talking about earlier, just in the preparation, how it took 45 years for wheels to be installed on luggage so that people could haul their luggage in an airport without having to to carry it by the handle. And the story is that, in fact, the people who were funding the development of this product were white men, And because they were white men and they are the ones who carry the suitcases for their wives and daughters, they didn't need wheels on their suitcases. So are there any other types of areas like this where the fact that the, the, again, we come back to the context and the environment, because of what it is currently, it represents or it, it introduces these kinds of lost opportunities in terms of innovation.
1: Well, yeah, I think we see it everywhere. I mean, it's like, you know, for whom and why and who decides this new standard that we've written. It's also just say, even who decides that a standard's necessary is, you know, who's making the decision, who represents whom, who should be in the room, what should be the discussion. I, it, it speaks, to, it does speak to the issue of representation. I don't think that it's all about representation, but it very clear, I think it speaks to consultation. Too, I think that you need to be able to have lots of people in the room who represent lots of different points of view that will enable you to have more robust decisions. Um, and in that case, you know, make a decision by you know maybe people would like to have wheels on their on their suitcases. I was just telling you, I was telling you the story of um, research that was done on um, on a drug that turned out to actually be quite magical in terms of. Um, getting rid of menstrual pain, but it also had a very small side effect of, of, of helping with erectile dysfunction. And they, whoever made that decision thought there was a much bigger market for that and they developed Viagra and they threw away the research on the menstrual pain. So it was also who was in the room that would have said, yeah, that could be useful. Yeah, I, I know somebody that would be happy to um, be relieved of the pain. So I don't know if that answers your question. It,
0: it does. It does. And it, it also ties into another thing that we've seen emerge a little bit recently, which is this whole notion of femtech. So innovations that are by women for the most part, but directed at women's needs, partly to overcome this, this bias or these lost opportunities in innovation generally. And I, I, I don't think... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think this is going to fundamentally change the nature of, of invention in that we're going to have a his and her type of innovation. But do we, do we need to make sure that when we're looking at innovation, when we're looking at data sets, that these data sets are as, again, unbiased as a judgment call, but they're unbiased as, and as representative or as complete as possible to, to be able to benefit society as a whole.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would use the word, word overused, but inclusive, right? Because I learned so much when we were doing the consultations for the standard where there were representatives not only from consumer groups, but from disabled groups, from intellectually impaired, from, I mean, it really, there's a huge world out there. And we all need to be able to use products. And I also think it's going to make for better business because there are going to be more people who are going to buy things. But at the end, most interesting to me is it's going to make for better science. So for me, it's not that there's going to be all this stuff for women. It's going to be there's an unexplored and untapped market. There's um, There's an untapped part of science about gender differences that's really quite extraordinary, because it turns out that in the human body, not only our, repro- obviously our reproductive cells are different, but it turns out that our heart cells are different, our lung cells are different, our kidney cells are different. Every single part of the human body is different in a woman as a man. And if we look at, as we have historically, as women as just small men, <laughs> and that it's all default male. And if we can start to look at, study some of this in, in female rodents, NIH has been, those of you who work in that area know that NIH is now demanding that that research be done on female as well as male. Um, but there's a really a long way to go. But I look at it as an opportunity in, for excellence in science, as opposed to, OK, please include women.
0: So one of the, one of the metrics that people have started to look at is the identification of women as inventors named in patent applications. And we know historically the data clearly shows that there are much fewer women named as inventors than there are men as inventors. But there's another aspect that you raised a little earlier in our, in our discussion. And I'd just like to, to refer to a comment that was posted in, in one of the comments in that in Germany, for example, female or women inventors represent about 6% of the total inventorship and female patent attorneys represent about 10% of the total. And so the commenter says, well, you know, we, we live in a world invented by men for men.
1: And it's probably a self-perpetuating cycle, right? So if you go to a male patent attorney, perhaps he might say, Madam, I don't think that your patent has any hope of going anywhere because who cares about improving a cooking stove? Not to be gendered, that's what a woman's adventure would be. But it's also who determines what's interesting, who determines to go to the Viagra example, who determines what's useful, what's necessary, why aren't there female crash test dummies in cars. Somebody must have just felt it wasn't necessary. So again, that is representation. So if you had more female patent attorneys and you had more. Also, we talked about inventors, right? So what we're seeing is that when women do invent, they tend to be um, filing patents as part of larger groups. They're less single patent um, applicants or holders. They're, and they're usually leading academic collaborations as opposed to uh, private sector collaborations.
0: Right, right. I mean, that's really, really fascinating. Before we move on to the governance issue, which I want to talk a little bit because FICPE is an international NGO. It, it's, a, it's a nonprofit, it's a lobbying group, and it probably would benefit from some of the tips or some of the issues that you've raised. Um, there is another question that where I'd like you to explain a little bit what the difference is between women at the table and the A-plus Alliance?
1: So Women at the Table um, has a number of initiatives and A-plus Alliance is one of them. We're the co-founder. We're spending almost most of our time working on it at the moment, but Women at the Table does other things. So for example, we end, I have a meeting, I don't know if they've decided to tune in with our IP attorneys um, tomorrow, that we have a piece of software um, that we've developed with uh, a company called ThoughtWorks uh, that measures in international, well, measures anywhere that you wanna be measured, um, how much women are speaking, their um, their authority in speaking, their delegated authority, their capacity, their um, so we were seeing so in the software, for example, we have um, we saw it was 60 40 percent in terms of the delegates. So that seems pretty great. So 60 right, so
0: this 30%. is this is in a, in a given conference.
1: Yeah, this is just happened to be a conference that we did some beta testing it. But then when we actually looked at, okay, so that was the numbers of people who registered. Then we looked at the, how the speaking time, we saw the men spoke 81% of the time and the women spoke 19% of the time. So already that starts to tell you something. We're also gonna be using it at the cop with the old cop data on age. So who's speaking, are they ahead of a delegation? What region are they from? We track, um, so age, gender, region. Um, and we have an algorithm that also sort of talks about who's talking about what. So unsurprisingly, the women, we have gender as a default. It measures that. So, but there are always women talking about gender, but at the, you know, hard science, cybersecurity, ocean management, you know, it's always much more male. So we're trying to really look at that kind of data, um, which we hope by sharing with people, will you know maybe make people reflect and change. So, so that's a women at the table thing. So we do things other than the eight plus alliance, but we but most of our work right now is on algorithms. Thanks for asking.
0: So that's very interesting because that leads us into the governance aspect of some of the things that you're doing, and you know, FICP is an organization we have members from all over the world and we also know because we've seen it that the literature continues to demonstrate that representative representativeness and inclusiveness make organizations fundamentally better and more innovative. How can an organization like Fikpi uh, raise its awareness and start identifying some of the blind spots that we that the organization might have? Is it by using that software that you're talking about?
1: I mean, you You could. That would be one thing to do. I think you have to be very intentional about. um, So the change that we've seen that's been effective at international organizations that we worked with through Gender Champions, where people did, you wouldn't do an employee survey, you would do a membership survey. And right there, everybody was very, very shocked, whoever initiated a survey such as that, to see the difference in perception the women had from the men. It was just like two different worlds. And based on that data, um, the leaders of these organizations then went about and tried to find different ways to address the issue. One group saw that they needed to help elevate the idea of gender equality by having male allies. So they assigned male ambassadors, very powerful men in the organization with women. So the two of two, as, um, you know, as duets, they could go around and they could talk about where gender was being addressed, where it wasn't being addressed. In, um, because we work a lot in the international world, there are assemblies every year. If you make sure that gender is actually a standing issue, so that you actually report on your membership and who's speaking and who's got Power positions. Because the other thing that we're, um, or I'm certainly past, is just counting the numbers of women in the room. So you may have 50% women, but are they on the committees that are the finance committee? Are they, do you know what I mean? Are they making the executive decisions? Do they have power positions? When you're looking at C suites, are you not looking at just are they human resources and marketing, but they actually doing some of the hardcore stuff that's strategic and going to change? change the trajectory of a law firm, for example, right? Are they the partners that are in charge of the budget as opposed to in charge of seminars on women's rights?
0: Or HR. Yeah. And then the other thing I, I think we we alluded to as well is the, you know, when when the organization is setting up a panel or a presentation or giving a conference, the importance to, I hate to use this, but to avoid manals at all costs seems to me fundamental.
1: Yeah, I, you know, we had the experience in Geneva, which is actually how we started gender champions, because there was there were 14 people on a panel about the future of women and technology ministers, and they were all men <laughs> about how women were going to change the future and they were the future. And we thought that was a little ridiculous. It's there's so many talented, so many. I mean, you have an extraordinary talented bench of people in your organization. So there's absolutely no reason that you would ever have to have an all-male panel. Or I must say conversely, an all-female panel about how women are how it's not fair for women. I I also think that we need to include male allies in all the conversations that we have out loud about how we want to change institutions with men sitting there. Not not an all-male panel about women, but a man with you know three, four, five women really talking as an ally. So we can, I think we'll move farther faster that way.
0: Right. This is really, really Incredible. There was another thing I wanted to address just before we wrap up a little bit. So one of the things that we've tried to see, and I'm going to come back to this this notion of IP protection. There is a movement by some in big tech specifically to classify the automated decision-making systems as trade secrets to make sure that that secret sauce you were alluding to earlier is not capable of being replicated, replicated or taken by someone else.
1: Yeah. I was going to say it's the thing that I'm most scared of. That there's a WTO version of that, and I'm worried about the WIPO version of that. And I would love to work with anybody in your organization that wants to make sure that this doesn't happen. We um, what I want to put out there for people then who are scared at my saying that, there you know, like with the Dodd Frank Law and also the sort of too big to fail bank laws that were passed, that they're perfectly reasonable ways to have audits so that don't get out, that don't hurt your, you know, don't hurt you in the public eye or hurt you on Wall Street, but allow for um, regulators to really be able to go into your books or your algorithm in a way and make sure that it serves the intent and it serves the spirit of the laws that you want to abide by. And I think that it would be wrong to give trade secret status to anything that is as important as automated decision-making where humans need recourse to understand how the machine is making a decision about them and that a machine has made a decision about them and that their lives have been have been um, affected. And there's also a very big difference between a closed um, environment of, of machine learning like you would do in biology if you're looking for new drugs or new patents, as opposed to something that's an open environment working in the wild and is going to be affecting humans. Um, so I think that you have a very important part to play in the future of protecting us all, of making sure it's fair, making sure innovation happens for sure, but that it happens in a way that we're really able to make sure that the democracy stays robust and that things become a little bit more equal. And and I see that as actually an IP lawyer opportunity.
0: I think, and certainly organizations like FICP or other international organizations certainly have a role to play when it comes to, to something like that uh, without falling into the trap of, of advocating for one or the other clients that you may or, or may not have. So, you know, I think your point is, is extremely well taken. One person has asked, you know, are there any uh, papers or books or reports that summarize for the, the non-IT or non-algorithms savvy person, the examples that you've illustrated in your slides?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of really good books. I mean, now all of a sudden I'm gonna I'm going
0: if you could forward them to us. Um... I
1: will. There are two or three really well written books. Um, uh, one by Virginia Eubanks, the other by Sophia Noble. Who's will give you the names of them, and they're really worthwhile reading um, and just thinking about. Oh, the world
0: around you. There is another book that I'd like to mention because this is something that I picked up on your Twitter feed. It's called Mother of Invention. It's a book that recently came out, and it does look at some of the issues surrounding why some technologies were not promoted or adopted or looked into because of the context in which the invention was made. And you know, a lot of those context elements were because it was it was men. And there was the, the so the first example in the book is the. The issue of the, of the wheels on the suitcases, because it wasn't manly for a man to pull around a suitcase behind them uh, in an airport. And then there's, a, there's the famous story about Carl Benz's wife, who secretly during the night took her kids for a 60-mile drive to go visit her parents in the car that Carl Benz had invented. And what she wanted to do is to prove the point that, uh, well, A, women could drive cars. And B, Benz had invented not just an engine, but a, a new way of locomotion, a new way of getting around. So those are just great, fascinating, fascinating examples. Just before we go, is there is there any steps that our listeners can take right away? Are there any hacks, for lack of a better word, that you would suggest?
1: You know, I think the big, you know, for talking about your larger role in IP, I think as lawyers, as critical questioners, as sort of masters and mistresses of critical analysis, I think you could really be helping out by asking your IP clients what the intention of their invention is, what the intention of the thing that you're trying to protect is. What is it supposed to be doing? Have they thought about the biases? Have they thought about mitigating it? Have they thought about what happens if it falls into the wrong hands, even though they've invented it for the people with only the most beautiful and beneficent hands? And to ask them the questions and really be in dialogue. I think that that could be really useful. I think you have a part to play as citizens and as trusted counselors.
0: Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's really all the time we have. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you, Caitlin, today. Thank you very, very much for taking some time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule to speak with us. Caitlin Craft Buckman is in Geneva. She's the founder of Women at the Table, of which one of the projects is the A Plus Alliance. She is easily found on LinkedIn and social media. Um, Her website, Women at the Table, can also be found very easily. Caitlin, again, thank you very, very much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a total delight to be in conversation with you. So until the next time.
0: Thank you very much. And to everyone, thank you. And we'll be
2: seeing you at our next FICPE Focus 45 event. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FIGP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.